Hi, I'm your host, Lillian Yang, and you are listening to Food Nonfiction. We tell the incredible true stories behind food. Your other host, Fakri, has just moved across the country, so we will check in with her at the end of the episode. This is the story of the 11 monasteries in the world that are brewing super high quality beers. The monks at these 11 brewing monasteries are part of the Cistercian order of these strict observance. To tell this story, we spoke to Caroline Wallace. My uh, day job is I'm the deputy director for the Texas Craft Brewers Guild, and we're a trade association um, that supports all the independent craft breweries in Texas. But basically, I plan um, craft beer festivals and conferences for brewers. We fight to kind of get the beer laws changed and modernized in Texas. So those are kind of the things I'm working on in the beer world. Caroline, along with her friends Jessica Deal and Sarah Wood, traveled to each of the 11 brewing monasteries. And together, they wrote the book Trappist Beer Travels. My name's Caroline Wallace, and I'm one of the co-authors of the book Trappist Beer Travels. The term Trappist is a casual way to refer to a Cistercian of the strict observance. If you are part of the Cistercian order, you can be of the common observance or of the strict observance. Trappists are part of the strict observance. It's a very strict order. Cistercians of the strict observance have broken off from simply Cistercians over the years. It's a funny dichotomy because, I mean, frankly, think about if you come from an American background, you'd be like, man, these monks brew beer. They're pretty cool. They must be you know, a little more relaxed or a little more, you know, modern than maybe what you think of for monks. But in terms of the lifestyles they lead, they're actually one of the strictest monastic communities around the globe in, in terms of, you know, dedicating their lives to living at these monasteries, the amount of time every day they devote to prayer and work. Those are kind of some of the things that make them unique. The Trappists were inspired by the rule of St. Benedict. It's a text of guidance for monasteries. Basically, the teachings can be summarized by the motto Ora et Labora, which means pray and work. It's a rule that monastic communities all over the world live under, but it's that idea of not just solitude and prayer, but also, you know, working with your hands and doing a, a, a trade to support your monastery. So that's how brewing kind of got intertwined with the lives of, of these monks. I should note here that various Trappist monasteries make different products. For example, chocolates and cheeses, etc. Only 11 currently produce commercial beer. Regardless of the product, it's made with care and it's sold so that Trappists can support their way of life. All of these monasteries are producing products that are continuing their way of life in these communities. It's, it's expensive to maintain a lot of these very old buildings, a lot of these sometimes large grounds, and the lives of, you know, dozens um, or back in the day hundreds of people who live in this community who don't have jobs in the outside world you know so they have to build a little economy of their own and produce goods of their own to survive to get the label of authentic trappist product a monastery has to already be a member of the international trappist association once you apply for the authentic trappist product label then there is a lengthy evaluation process to make sure that criteria and standards are met. Things that bound all Trappist beer are three criteria, um, that they're all brewed within the walls of a Trappist monastery. They're all brewed under the supervision of monks or directly by the monks. 
And they're basically, the, these monasteries are nonprofits. The profits from the beer go back to support the way of life at the monasteries, maintaining these very old buildings, feeding the monks, caring for the grounds, that kind of thing. And anything left over, um, it goes to charity or to support other monasteries. So those are the three things that really bound these beers together and make them authentic Trappist beers. But in terms of a flavor profile, I'd say there's, there's a wide range but you definitely see a lot of traditional Belgian styles and the addition of re-fermentation in the bottle or secondary fermentation in the bottle. Bottle conditioning is very common for pretty much any Trappist beer. And that's when an extra dose of uh, sugar or in some cases honey with a few of these beers and yeast are put into the bottle just prior to capping it so that it, the beer continues to change and grow in the bottle. Okay, um, that's interesting. Yeah. So they all do drink beer. A lot of these monks do drink beer. Um, typically, a lot of them will have it just with dinner or some just on Christmas <laughs> or special occasions. But it really is to the person and individual. What's interesting is we were told by some of the monks at Spencer who had started up their brewing program that they actually, in addition to teaching the monks there about beer brewing, they also had to foster a beer culture at the Abbey because so many of the monks there either didn't drink or if they were drinkers were wine fans <laughs> and not beer drinkers. So many of these Belgian monasteries, their culture, just the, you know, the country has a rich tradition of beer drinking. So the, the monks had more exposure to beer. And let's face it, those abbeys, a lot of them have been brewing so long that <laughs> the, the beer preceded those individual monks at that abbey. What's important to remember is that beer has been an important part of monastic life for hundreds of years. In fact, there is a famous architectural drawing dating all the way back to the year 820 AD. And in this drawing, there is a design of a monastery brewery. By the way, this architectural drawing I'm referring to is the Plan of St. Gall. It is an architectural treasure from the Middle Ages. The act of brewing beer in Europe goes back a really long time. Before water was potable to drink, alcoholic beverages were you know, seen by some as a safer alternative. And that's why their popularity really, really spread. So yes, beer was a big part of many monasteries. Back when available water was really unsanitary, beer was safer to drink. Because it's made from boiled water. And that boiling process kills bacteria. So monks drank beer and they also gave it to travelers and the poor. Another thing that's important in the Trappists really cite this is that they, they call beer liquid bread. So they were pre eating pretty meager diets back in the day. And, you know, often being in very remote areas, maybe land that wasn't good for farming. And so by being able to brew beer and drink it, that gave them some extra calories, some extra nutrients that were often lacking in their diet. In fact, in Belgium, there is a term for a glass of beer that translates to a sandwich in a glass. So the first brewing at Trappist monasteries was really just to support the monks and give them, you know, something to drink. And also for travelers, because so many of the monasteries are in really remote areas. There would be people passing through on long journeys that knew they could rely on a monastery for a place to stay, these guests. So having the beer available was, you know, something the monks could offer these travelers with their meals. Nowadays, when you think of beer, you don't really think of monasteries anymore. We might have forgotten the connection between beer and monasteries because commercial breweries diminished the importance of monastery breweries. As demand for beer grew over the years, more and more commercial breweries emerged. 
demand grew for a variety of reasons. For example, back when more merchants began traveling between towns, inns and taverns started popping up, and these establishments sold food, rest, and of course, beer. In more recent years, these monastery breweries have become more popular because there's international interest. A shimei has been. Distributed to the U.S. or imported in the U.S. for for decades now. For a lot of beer drinkers I talk to, especially those who might be in their you know 40s or 50s, Chimay was like that first beer they tried that wasn't a you know a big American three light lager.、Um, it really opened a lot of people's eyes to what beer can could be. This higher alcohol, this richer flavor. So Chimay is a, a really important, I think, historically for Trappist beer and really a. Is usually even if someone's not a beer nerd, if you start naming these Trappist breweries, they might not have heard of many of them. But Chimay is one that you know people have kind of heard of. The West Flutterin Twelve, nicknamed Westie Twelve, has been rated the number one beer in the world more than once on the U.S. website RateBeer.com. People were flocking to the Abbey because they could only come there to really legally buy the beer. Since then, you've started to see it for. Resale at a 600% markup in tourist shops in Belgium, or even at beer bars in the U.S., who are kind of gray market or black market selling it. Unless you're willing to pay a huge markup on the price, the only way to get the West Flutter and beers is to buy it from the Abbey store, and it is quite a process. First, you have to check their web page to see when they will be accepting reservations. You have to check which beers they'll be accepting reservations for at that time, and you also have to check how much you're allowed to reserve. Then you have to call in and make an appointment, and you might not even get through because there's so many people that will be calling at the same time. Now, assuming you get lucky and they pick up your call, you have to tell them the license plate number of the car you'll be driving when you pick up the order. They track that license plate number, so you can't use the same vehicle for another order for 60 days. There's a, like a legendary story about West Flutter and how their phone lines were crashed when people tried to call in、uh, to reserve because you call in and reserve, you know, a case or, or however much of the beer you want to pick up. A fist fight broke out in line over over beer and was captured by Belgian news media. It was a a big circus and and a lot more than these these quiet monks who live this contemplative life wanted to deal with. People really want to try this world's greatest beer. I personally have not tried it, but I have tried the Rochefort Six, and I've heard the Rochefort Ten is pretty amazing. But these names probably don't mean anything to you right now. Luckily, we have Caroline here. As we mentioned earlier, Caroline and her two co-authors traveled to all eleven Trappist monastery breweries, and she's here to tell that story. Basically, we. We had appointments lined up at every abbey. We needed to use interpreters at most of those, so we would meet up with a, a local interpreter who we'd prearranged to have accompany us, and we would、uh, talk to, oftentimes the monks, the brewers,、uh, brewery directors, kind of a mix of the monks themselves and,、uh, as they call them, layman personnel or, or lay people who are, are non non monks, you know, employed at these abbeys in various capacities. So we took the journey. We found. Incredible bits of history at each.、Um, tried amazing beers. Kind of the first leg was starting with the six Belgian abbeys, which are Westmalle, Akel, Rochefort, Orval, Chimay, and Westvleteren,、um, as well as the two in the Netherlands, which are 
um, Zundert and Koenigshoven, which is more commonly known as La Trappe um, in terms of the brewery. Then we drove across Germany to a remote abbey just across the border into Austria called Stift Ingelsell. I met there with their abbot and a few different people, their brewer um, and a, a great woman who runs the kind of whole operation. <laughs> and um, from there, we took an overnight train to Rome to visit Trefontana, which is the newest authentic Trappist brewery. The abbey itself, it's in the heart of Rome and it actually goes back to the the dawn of Christianity. It's a very old, very old abbey, but they have just started a brewery in recent years to become kind of this newest authentic Trappist monastery brewery. From there, we took a, a flight back to the United States and visited the last of the 11, um, which is Spencer Brewery at St. Joseph's Abbey, um, which is uh, about an hour or so outside of Boston in Spencer, Massachusetts. All the abbeys have really rich backstories. They're in these isolated places, but they're not isolated from the outside world. You have abbeys that have been occupied during wars, like Chimay was occupied during World War II by German forces. The monks were expelled from, from the abbey. Ingelsell, similarly, um, in Austria, same thing. The monks were kicked out of the abbey by German forces, and the abbey was secularized. So very interesting stories, um, sometimes very heartbreaking stories. We're going to tell you a little bit about each Trappist brewery. But if you're interested in more detail, you should pick up the Trappist Beer Travels book. We'll begin with West Mala Abbey, as it was the first Trappist Abbey to sell their beer commercially. It was actually 1856 that West Mala in Belgium, that became the abbey to make the first commercial sale of their beer. So to sell it kind of beyond the monastery gate to be served elsewhere or to be taken home and not just to be drank at the abbey. Then there's Orval Abbey. Orval Abbey's name comes from a legend. The legendary Mathilde, born in 1046 AD, is said to have dropped her wedding ring in a spring. When she prayed that she'd find it again, a trout came out of the water carrying her ring in its mouth. In amazement, she called the place a Val d'Or, as in a golden valley. So Orval, the name, comes from Val d'Or, the monastery built upon a golden valley. Akel is a, a little uh, Trappist monastery brewery on the border between Belgium and the Netherlands. It has a, a very interesting history. It's been there <laughs> quite a while. Um, it's this, the town is actually known for um, a lot of activity during World War One. The abbey was occupied, partially destroyed, um, and the monks have rebuilt and, <laughs> and kind of stayed there. Another Belgian abbey is West Vlederen, which we've already mentioned brews the West Vlederen 12 which has been rated as the world's best beer. It has a long and rich history. There was a lot of really bad combat during World War I and World War II, not too far from West Flutteren. So it bears some scars. Another Trappist Abbey in Belgium is Chimay. Out of all the Trappist breweries, they produce the most beer. In fact, you probably won't have any trouble finding this one at a local beer store. Chimay also had some <laughs> troubles in World War II, like many of these abbeys. Something kind of interesting about Chimay is that they brew still in the monastery walls, like all of these authentic Trappist monastery breweries. But in order to get the kind of distribution that they have all around the world in, in such a large volume, they actually bottle off-site. They own their own bottling facility, but it's a few miles away from the brewery um, in a much more large, industrial, loud building. Um, and they truck the beer from the monastery over there to be bottled um, so that they can still, you know, be in, in accordance as an authentic Trappist monastery brewery, but they can also 
you know, really have that industrial scale that they need. Next is Rochefort, which originated in the 13th century. It's the only Trappist Abbey that really doesn't have a public attraction. It doesn't have a shop, it doesn't have a tasting room, and they don't offer public tours. So the first brewery there was founded, I think, in 1595. And the water for the beer is drawn from a well on site. Um, so that's something they really take a lot of pride in, that water. Unlike Rochefort, La Trappe Brewery is really visitor-friendly. They have a restaurant, a tasting room, outdoor seating, and regular tours at the brewery. Koenigshoven, or La Trappe, as the line of beers is known, is a Trappist monastery brewery in the Netherlands. Koenigshoven started a brewery at the Abbey, the La Trappe Brewery, in 1884 or so. It, had, it went by a different name at that time, um, but they've been brewing since that time. Zundert is the other Trappist monastery brewery in the Netherlands, and they just started brewing in 2014. They were the first abbey we visited on our trip who began brewing that recently. So it was a really interesting change of pace to talk to the two monks there, Brother Guido and Brother Christian, who run their brewing program, because they were there since its inception. So they were able to tell us about the process of, of brainstorming and recipe development. The monks at Zundert came up with their signature beer by creating a word map. Basically, they wrote down all the words describing what they wanted their beer to evoke. Ideas like challenge and silence and hope. It took them over two years to find the flavor that expressed what they wanted to express. Stift Ingelsell is the only Trappist monastery in Austria. They're just a few kilometers over the border from, from Bavaria, from Germany, um, and they're right along the Danube. It's a really beautiful brewery. The final European Trappist monastery brewery is Trefontana in Rome. The legend of Trefontana is that the prophet St. Paul was beheaded there <laughs> on, the, on the site of the monastery by order of the Emperor Nero. The, actually, there's a legend that when he was beheaded, his head bounced three times, and from the three bounces uh, sprang three fountains or founts, um, and that's what, where the name Trefontana or three fountains comes from. Um, eucalyptus has actually found its way into the beer. It's a kind of unique and, and cool part of the Abbey's history. Um, at one point, eucalyptus was thought to actually cure malaria or prevent malaria because they were seeing that, huh, you know, it's back in the Middle Ages, that wherever this eucalyptus grows, people seem to not be getting malaria, which was a big problem back then. What it turns out is that eucalyptus is a plant that requires a lot of water. It sucks up a lot of water. So if you have a lot of eucalyptus on your property, you generally will not have a lot of standing water, and thus mosquitoes <laughs> um, are not going to populate, and thus less of a chance for malaria risk. So um, this was grown all over the Abbey, and it has been a rich part of the Abbey's story. And so when they decided to start a brewing program at Trefontana, they knew they wanted to incorporate the eucalyptus in the beer. So the result, they only make one beer right now, and it's a eucalyptus triple. It's a really unique beer, one of the only beers I've ever had with eucalyptus in it. And it's a really well-balanced, you know, slightly herbaceous, slightly refreshing beer that, I don't know, reminds me of a spa, kind of, <laughs> but that it has a lot amazing. of flavor. Finally, there's Spencer Brewery. This is the only American Trappist brewery and it's at St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts. They're actually really well-known for quality jams and jellies. The first beer that they brewed there was actually a beer with a slightly lower alcohol content. It's basically a beer that the monks would traditionally have with meals. A lot of these Trappist beers are pretty high alcohol and kind of your special occasion beers. <laughs> um, but a lot of these breweries, you know, will brew a, it's kind of slightly lower alcohol beer, um, which the monks drink with more frequency. 
So there you have it, the incredible true story of the 11 Trappist Monastery breweries. If you're interested in learning more, you can pick up a copy of the book Trappist Beer Travels. It reads like a mixture between a diary, travel guide, and history book. Hey, Frackery. Hey, Lillian. How's it going? Good, good. I'm excited to hear about what's been going on with you because you just moved. I did just move, like less than a week ago. (laughs) Um, I am in London, Ontario now. The birds and I are kind of settling in in that we're in my new place, but none of the furniture or anything else has arrived, so. That sounded so much like a saying of some kind, like the birds and I. They, they are, you know, some people call their, say their kids and I, the birds and I. Let's hear about your new position. Uh, so I'm starting a postdoctoral position at the University of Western Ontario. I am going to be looking at multisensory issues in children with autism spectrum disorder, which I'm really excited about. And um, so far, so good. If we have any new listeners, it would be amazing if you could press subscribe in iTunes or whatever other tool you're using to listen to podcasts. And it's also really helpful if you can leave us a review. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.